Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. When you visit Washington, D.C., there's so much for a history-minded person to see and do. If you have a car and can travel an hour outside the city, there's Arlington and Manassas. And if you have a whole day, you can drive west to Antietam, northwest to Gettysburg, south to Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville in the wilderness. With all these to see, it's easy to overlook Monocacy National Battlefield Park near Frederick, Maryland. But that is where the nation's eyes turned in July 1864, when it seemed that the fate of Washington, D.C. itself hung on the outcome of what happened there. We'll learn about that fateful place tonight from Ryan Quint, author of Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864. And we'll do that on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Annex, the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not the main headquarters in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, And as always, not speaking for East Carolina University or any of its constituent organizations. And likewise, my guest will speak only for himself tonight, as we always do. Well, it's the first show of April 2019. The semester is rushing toward a dramatic close. The NCAA March Madness basketball tournament is over. The NHL Stanley Cup tournament is over. Uh, As far as I know, the Major League Baseball season is over. Uh, As a Detroit Tigers fan, all these things uh, are are beyond my attention at this point, so I won't share them with you. Um, They may actually be going on or not even started as far as I know, but uh, my teams aren't in them. I'm watching college baseball at this point where the East Carolina Pirates are playing Duke, even as we speak in a Wednesday night game. Um, I'm not saying that I 
have a window open in the corner of the screen with the game on, but I'm not saying that you won't hear me interrupt our guest with shouts of, that was not a strike. Uh, if I do, pay, pay no mind. We're doing well here. Uh, we collectively, you and, and me, uh, putting together Civil War Talk Radio as a collective enterprise. Numbers uh, of hits for the show went up again uh, over 60,000 for the month of February and again over 60,000 for March 2019, setting new records uh, each month. We continue to grow. So thank you all for listening and for telling your friends about it and uh, for the emails you send and especially for the contributions you send via the PayPal donation button on www.impedimentsofwar.org, which is where you can uh, find out who's been on the show. You can listen to all the old shows, over 400 episodes from links there. Mark Gaffney keeps everything in order, tells us who's coming up next, uh, all kinds of uh, information. For example, we find out that next Wednesday, April 10th, uh, Susanna Ural will be returning to the show to talk about her latest book on Hood's Brigade, the most famous unit of the Confederate Army. March, no, April 17th, Michael Schaefer, In Memory of Self and Comrades, a Virginia Soldier's Memoir. Uh, Bradley Gottfried, April 24th, will talk to us about Point Lookout, a, uh, a name we might mention tonight when we're talk with uh, about the Battle of Monocacy in 1864. And we get to May uh, 6th of 2019, Amy Morrell Taylor will join us to discuss the plight of the refugee camps of the Civil War set up for the freedmen uh, as they tried to establish new lives while the war was swirling all around them. Uh, her book is called Embattled Freedom. On May 8th, Joan Cashin joins us to talk about artifacts of the Civil War. Her book is called War Stuff. And on the 15th, Gary Gallagher, who needs no introduction, uh, is the editor of a book of Civil War photographs and descriptions of places, aptly called Civil War Places, uh, an outstandingly beautiful book that you'll want to take a look at. So, lots going on on the show. Uh, I will be speaking tomorrow night at Petersburg, Virginia, at Pamplin Park, to the uh, Civil War Roundtable there. I had the opportunity a week or so ago to speak on a video podcast called Breaking Free, in which I was invited to come and talk about Abraham Lincoln, and I did. I Since our last chat here last week, I went and found it on YouTube and watched a bit of myself talking, see how I looked, um, see how my office looks. According to the YouTube statistics, there have been now, I believe, eight views of this video. So as many as seven of you listening tonight may have also seen it of the 60,000. Um, if you're curious, uh, search on YouTube for Breaking Free and my last name, the spelling of which will be repeated multiple times tonight by, by our announcer. And... Uh, you know, join the, the elite uh, seven who have who've already seen it. I'm hoping tomorrow night at Pamplin Park we'll have more than seven uh, listeners uh, attending and we can have a, a good roundtable discussion, but we'll see. It'll be fun regardless. Always look forward to that. And, uh, 
what else can we say? Uh, coming up in May 13th, I'll be speaking at Raleigh, the Civil War Roundtable there, and then going off on the annual This Hallowed Ground Tour. You've heard about that. I won't go back into details on that. But instead, let's move forward and... Uh, Oh, and remind you, of course, the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, June 14th through 19. Discounts apply to you. Call them up, tell them you're a Civil War Talk Radio listener, and you will, uh, you'll, you'll get in. So tonight we talk about uh, a battle that is not famous like Gettysburg or Shiloh, uh, but was certainly seen as critical in its day and which survives in the form of a uh, very interestingly preserved piece of Civil War landscape uh, as the nearby town of Frederick expands and grows all around it. Much parts of the battlefield have been uh, overtaken by urban sprawl. But a fair amount has been preserved, and I saw it for the first time myself last summer, returning from the uh, this hallowed ground tour. I made a point to stop off and see... No, I was coming back from Civil War Institute. That's when I did this. And I, I saw uh, the new visitor center at, at Monocacy and took the driving tour and was really intrigued by it. And when a book came out from Savas Beatty Publishers on the topic of Battle of Monocacy, I said, let's do a show on that. Uh, so I get to read the book, find out more about the battle, and share it with you. And that's what we'll do tonight. Uh, our guest is Ryan T. Quint, author of the book, Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864. Mr. Quint, are you there? I am indeed. How are you tonight? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing pretty good. That's good. Uh, you and I haven't met uh, in person on the Civil War trail anywhere, so can I ask you a little bit about your background, where... Uh, uh, where are you talking to us from right now, for example? Uh, sure. I'm talking to you right now, actually, from Williamsburg, uh, Virginia. I, I work for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation at the moment uh, as a costumed interpreter in the military programs department, uh, which I understand is 100 years earlier than what we're talking about right now. Uh, my Civil War background is, is, really, I've always been interested in the Civil War. So when it came time for me to go to college, I went to the University of Mary Washington, which is in Fredericksburg. And in Fredericksburg, which of course is a pretty pretty famous Civil War town, I think I could say safely. Uh, mm -hmm. I went, did a lot of studying and, and things like that with the National Park Service and with people who would eventually become involved with the Emerging Civil War blog. Uh, so uh, kind of started my, my Civil War legs in Fredericksburg, getting really involved in researching and writing this for the Civil War. So uh, I'm intrigued that you, you do the uh, first-person interpretation at Williamsburg. I teach public history courses. We used to have a living, we have on the books a living history course, but the professor who actually did that himself uh, retired, and I, I don't teach it. I don't feel qualified, but it strikes me as a, a fascinating way to present history to the public. So uh, without delaying or delving into monocacy, I, can you share the the weirdest thing you've encountered yet in dealing with the public uh, in the persona of someone from the 18th century? Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll preface that by saying I'm actually fortunate enough to work in third person. Uh, oh, okay. And I say I'm fortunate because I, I have all the respect in the world for people who can do first person interpretation and, and make it work for them uh, because I certainly can't. A couple of times I've tried, I've, I've failed miserably. 
So, so let, let me just say for our listeners, not in the public history world, in other words, you you say I'm portraying someone from the, the 17th century, 18th century. You don't, as opposed to first person, where you say I am Jedediah Hotchkiss and, and I'm, this is 1864. So you're, you're not pretending to be someone you're, you're, you're telling the right. audience in third person. Okay. So, right. so t- uh, go ahead. Right, but to your question about kind of the oddities, yes. You know, even though I'm in still, even though I'm in third person, I'm still costumed interpretation, uh, mm-hmm. and the amount of people who think uh, that I'm a statue until I move because I work in a building, <laughs> uh, I work in the magazine in Williamsburg, uh, so until I move, they think I'm a statue, or they they're not quite sure if I'm real, so they touch me. Uh, <laughs> please don't touch somebody unless you have their permission. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's the weirdest thing to be touched. To, to see, are you real? Is this real fabric? Yes, I, I promise I'm real, and yes, this is real fabric. Please back up. <laughs> so, would, so without in, at all making light of the real serious problem, a sort of Me Too movement for uh, uh, for costumed interpreters seems in line. Don't touch people without their permission. Uh, right. It, it's not fun. Wow. Right. Ab- uh, absolutely. So, have you done Civil War uh, interpreting as, as you know in Ranger uniform or or any other style? Have you worked on battlefields? Yeah, I have. I kind of skipped over that. From 2015 to 2018, uh, I was a seasonal historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. So I I did the the Ranger hat interpretation uh, for about three summers. Um, with the green and the gray, which are some of the happiest days of my life. Uh, I, I eagerly, for, eagerly look forward to a chance to get back into that. Um, but, but working in Fredericksburg at Spotsylvania was, was absolutely fantastic, working with some of the best historians that the, public, the National Park Service has to offer, whether it's John Hennessy, Frank O'Reilly, Greg Mertz, Elizabeth Parnitza, these really heavy hitters in, in public history. I got to, to work with them on a daily basis, and I, I consider myself extremely fortunate to have had that opportunity. That is a great opportunity. And those are names, you know, listeners, you, you've heard them on the show, uh, John Hennessy, Beth Bernitza, they've been on here and uh, talked about their work, and, and uh, you know how, how good they are. So, uh, Ryan, I, I, I envy you the chance to have worked with them on a daily basis. Uh, let's talk about um, your book, Determined to Stand and Fight, Battle of Monocacy. If we were talking about Gettysburg, we would just get right to it and assume everybody listening has a pretty clear idea what's going on. Uh, this battle, not so much. Uh, can you set the stage? When in the war does this take place? Sure. We're talking about the summer of 1864, and I, and I know that can kind of take some people by surprise when we talk about a Confederate invasion in the summer of 1864 that is knocking on the gates of Washington. And I use the word invasion very specifically, I know that a lot of people will, will use the word raid and things like that, but I specifically make a point to say it's an invasion, right? Jubal Early, who is the com- Confederate commander, is bringing his, what he, totals, uh, what he calls the Army of the Valley District, uh, about 15,000 Confederate soldiers. He's bringing them towards Washington, D.C. with an intent to capture the city. Uh, so in the summer of 1864, obviously you have the heavy campaigns, the Overland campaign, uh, you have the Atlanta campaign, and so Early's invasion can kind of sometimes get overlooked, but in the last days of June into the early days of July 1864, you have 15,000 Confederate soldiers who are making their way down the Shenandoah Valley, crossing the Potomac River, and then closing in on the nation's capital. And I think that's extremely important to talk about because here we are in July of 1864, 
And in November, Abraham Lincoln is up for re-election, and it is n- certainly no guarantee that he is going to be re-elected. And so Early's attempt to move on the Capitol, uh, I think, is kind of a last-ditch effort to try and persuade the, the war-weary public to think about who they're going to re-elect. Because if Early gets into the Capitol, I'm under no illusions that he would ever hold the Capitol. Uh, but the way I kind of phrase this when I give talks and book talks and things like that is to think about this. If Early raises the Confederate battle flag over the White House or over the Capitol building, uh, that is a massive PR move in the months leading up to the election. Uh, And when you have the Assistant Secretary of the Navy preparing to send Abraham Lincoln off on a steamer to try and get him out of the Capitol, this is a very significant set of days we're talking about, uh, which is why the Battle of Monocacy comes to be known as the battle that saved Washington. Uh, because it delays early, even for just a day or two, it delays early enough so that reinforcements can be sent to a, a city, Washington, that had previously been stripped, because all of these garrisons and forts had been stripped of their garrisons to resupply the losses that Grant had suffered at places like the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, and the opening attacks against Petersburg. So in the summer of 1864, Yes, Washington, D.C. has a ring of forts, but there's not that many people inside the forts. So this really is, uh, you know, from, from retrospect, we know who's going to win the war. It's easy to forget how contingent it was at the time and how, as you say, even a temporary appearance in the capital by a Confederate army could, could dramatically shift the political balance in the North. We'll talk more about this and other aspects of the campaign in just a moment. We're going to take a break and come back, talk further with Ryan T. Quint, author of Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ryan T. Quint, author of Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864. been talking about the importance of this campaign of, of Jubal Early's uh, invasion of Maryland, uh, aiming at the capture or at least uh, the discomfiture of Washington, D.C., which, as we said in the first segment, would have had enormous ramifications for the presidential election of 1864. So, Ryan, you're convinced that, that Early was quite serious about capturing D.C. It was not just a move to draw troops away from uh, Grant and Meade uh, to give give some respite to Lee's army uh, by by distracting, as as Jackson had done in the Valley Campaign. You think it was a serious attempt to to break into Washington? I do. Um, there is a letter that Jubal Early writes to Robert E. Lee from the city of Stanton, Virginia, on June 28, 1864. And in that letter, Early essentially says, I'm going to move north, I'm going to move against Washington, uh, and if I find an opportunity, he says, to take it. Uh, and so in this letter on June 28th, Early is admitting to Lee what his intentions are. Uh, the original of that letter is in Huntington, uh, out in California. There's a copy mm-hmm. of the letter in the Monocacy National Battlefields Archives, which is where I found it when I was doing some research in the, in the, the archives. Um, and so th- I think that was a, a perfectly good, a perfectly excellent resource into Early's mindset. Here is Early admitting to his commander what his intentions are, to move on Washington, and if he finds an opportunity, to take it. So if he's not planning to take it, you wouldn't tell your boss, you wouldn't raise expectations if you didn't have some intention of fulfilling them, clearly. So let's talk about the campaign. Um, Early's force moves uh, northward through the valley, downward, as as we say, uh, toward the Potomac River, and uh, as, as everybody knows, even if you don't take your maps out, but you should get your maps out for the rest of this, uh, Harper's Ferry is where the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers come together. Uh, Harper's Ferry is where John Brown carried out his raid. It's where Stonewall Jackson captured Union force during the Antietam campaign. And once again, there's Harper's Ferry uh, blocking the route out of the valley and into Maryland. Uh, does the Union not learn its lesson uh, of not trying to defend this place? What happens at Harper's Ferry? Yeah, it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, the Union Army defends Harper's Ferry, uh, specifically Franz Siegel. And Franz Siegel is an easy whipping post for a lot of historians to make fun of, especially in the summer of 1864 when he got defeated at the Battle of Newmarket. Um, but after his defeat at Newmarket, he gets put in, in command um, in that area, the town of Martinsburg, West Virginia, and Harper's Ferry. And when Early closes in on Harper's Ferry, Franz Siegel's forces occupy Maryland Heights. And if you've been to Harper's Ferry, you know 
the town itself is in a valley, uh, and you look straight up at, at Maryland Heights, and whoever controls Maryland Heights controls the town. In 1862, when Stonewall Jackson captures the town, he commanded Maryland Heights. But in 1864, Siegel does. And because Siegel commands Har- Maryland Heights, Early cannot do what his original intention is. In his autobiography, Early says it's his intention to get to the Potomac and then just follow the river straight into Washington's underbelly. But because Franz Siegel is atop Maryland Heights, he controls the access to the river, and he has a number of artillery pieces on top of Maryland Heights that are bombarding Early's position. Early is going to take a couple of days, right around Independence Day, July 4, July 5, to try and push Siegel off of Maryland Heights. Um, but the skirmishing there is, is not really you know, proving to be successful, and so then Early decides to swing around, head for the South Mountain Passes, the same ones fought, fought over in 1862, and then using those passes, head down into the Frederick Valley, and then head right towards Washington. So again, even though Siegel is an, is an easy opportunity to make fun of, in 1864 he does his job, and then some. So he, he absolutely deserves a, a share of the credit uh, in saving the capital, alongside Lou Wallace, um, who we'll talk about in a little bit. There's a, a photograph in your book that shows the the view that shows how dramatic uh, the view is from Maryland Heights, overlooking uh, the uh, the old town of uh, Harper's Ferry, and it, it's a place. Uh, Jefferson said of the view in the other direction was worth worth a trip across the Atlantic to see that view. Uh, Harper's Ferry is just a spectacular piece of topography. And you can certainly see how Siegel, by having guns on top of the mountain above the town, you know, couldn't be pushed off. But Early goes around. Uh, so Early is moving in. Um, now what's between him and Washington? There's not a whole lot. Um, there is a very antsy general by the name of Lou Wallace. Uh, now, Lou Wallace is obviously very famous for writing Ben-Hur in 1880, uh, but in 1864, he is the commander nominally of what was called the Middle Department, um, or in charge of the 8th Army Corps, and Wallace's headquarters had been in Baltimore, and he had scurried out towards Frederick with a limited number of, basically what were equivalent of 100-day men, men who were raised for about three months of service, and that's it. Uh, Wallace's Western Command District was the Monocacy River, just outside of Frederick. And with his limited number of 100-day men, Ohio National Guards and what was called the Potomac Home Brigade, Wallace intends to make his stand along the Monocacy River. And he is sending up, you know, save our ship. He's sending out SOSs all the time asking, hey, I need help, I need help, which is finally going to get through to Chief of Staff Henry Halleck and... Ulysses S. Grant, and they're going to finally send reinforcements. But for a little while, it's just Lew Wallace and his cadre of really inexperienced soldiers to hold the line. Uh, and so Wallace is doing the best he can with the limited numbers he can to delay Early's march. So when so Halleck is, is slow to respond, Grant is slow to respond. They, they both don't believe that Early is really marching north, that, that he's left Lee's army. Uh, but they do finally send reinforcements. You get, uh, it's the 6th Corps, I believe, is sent from, from Grant's army, actually Meade's army, to go go help. Even when they get there, though, I, I, this is one of the striking things about the battle. The overall numbers engaged, roughly 15,000 Confederates, 6,000 Union. 
that is, uh, there are not many battles in the Civil War where the Confederacy has such a preponderance of numbers. So how does Wallace plan to stop them? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, initially, Wallace had moved his men across the Monocacy into Frederick itself. And on July 7th, as Early's men came down off the South Mountain Passes, there had been skirmishing on the western portions of Frederick on July 7th until the early morning hours of July 8th. But by nightfall of July 8th, Wallace realized he is not going to be able to hold Early's men in Frederick. And so what he does is he retreats across the Monocacy River, and he's going to use that defensive barrier, the river itself, to help and slow down Early's forces. There are only a couple of bridges across the Monocacy River in that area. There are only a couple of passable fords in that area. And so poising his, his limited numbers along those, those riverine crossings, both the bridges and the fords, he's hoping to slow down early. Uh, and in his own memoirs, Wallace essentially admits to saying, I, I know I'm not going to win this battle, but every minute that I can delay is another minute that Washington can be defended. Because with early at the Monocacy River, it's only a, about 50 miles to Washington. So he has to do something to slow down what was seemingly up to that point an unstoppable force. So he has to slow it down, and he's going to use the river and its natural barriers to his benefit. And, and so the river is deep enough, or the banks are steep enough, that you can't just cross it anywhere. Uh, artillery certainly can't, even infantry can't just go across anywhere they want to. Uh, so, so the bridges and fords are going to be critical. Uh, the uh, One of those bridges, you, you make a note, is uh, an iron railroad bridge that belonged to the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. The intersection of private property and public policy comes into play here. Uh, the B&O Railroad is not a part of the U.S. War Department, but they, they play a role in this battle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, specifically the president of the Baltimore and Ohio. Uh, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's president was a man named John Garrett, who, quite frankly, was tired of his stuff being broken. <laughs> seemingly, seemingly every time there was a Confederate campaign into the, in, to Maryland and Pennsylvania, his railroad tracks got ruined. Uh, they, were, they were torn up in 1861. They were torn up in 1862. They were broken up in 1863. During the Antietam campaign, for example, the Baltimore Ohio Railroad had lost around $30,000 worth of resources. And so by 1864, Garrett says, you know, enough of this. And so it's, it's Garrett's rail workers in the Shenandoah Valley in 1864 who really sent up the first alarm. Hey, Jubal earlier is moving north. And Garrett will write to Halleck and write to Grant, and when they both kind of shrug him off, that's when he goes to Lew Wallace. And remember that Wallace's headquarters were in Baltimore. And so Garrett essentially says, nobody else is listening to me. I have this iron railroad bridge. You need this railroad bridge to move materials and assets to Ohio. If this railroad bridge gets destroyed, that process will obviously be eliminated. And so what are you going to do? And to Gretet's fortune, Lew Wallace is one of the few people that actually enjoys combat. He, the adrenaline kicks in. He, he just, there's something about combat that he revels in. Wallace does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when, when Garrett says, here's an opportunity to go and fight, Wallace jumps on the, the next available train and heads out west to the Monocacy Junction. Um, and so Garrett really lights a fire underneath Wallace that scoots him in the right direction. And, and so Garrett is, is one of the people who plays a pivotal role 
even though he has no command, he's not in government, but because he's the president of the BNO, he's the one who says, hey, we got to go, we got to do this, and Lou Wallace listens to him. Lou Wallace takes his available resources and heads out to the junction. And there, there is a junction of, of the Baltimore, Ohio. It keeps going west from where it crosses the river, but it also a spur goes up to, to Frederick, so you've got a junction. Uh, and that that's one of the first places where the, the fighting starts. Well, give, give us a sense. What is Early's plan to cross the river? He faces now a, a, a pretty serious barrier. How does he plan to, 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 to defeat the Union? Yeah, so that's a very good question, and we can get to this in a little bit more detail. But Jubal Early drops the ball. Uh, he just loses sight of the big picture on the early morning hours of July 9th, 1864. Early himself will not go to the battlefront uh, well into the battle, well into the late hours of the morning, into the early hours of the afternoon. He stays in town and starts to ransom the town. He demands $200,000 in gold or in cash payment to, the, to his Confederate forces. At, in the meantime, his divisions of infantry are leaving Frederick and heading down towards the battlefield. And so when it comes time for the battle to start, you have two divisions of Confederate infantry, Robert Rhodes' division and Stephen Ramser's division, who are both kind of doing their own thing, right? You have a principle of warfare called command and control. Rhodes and Ramser are neither subordinate to or in seniority to, so they are working together, but there's nobody in charge calling the shots. And since Rhodes is killed at Third Winchester, and since Ramser is killed at Cedar Creek, Cedar Creek in 1864, neither of them came time to write reports on Monocacy. So in the early morning hours of July 9th, we know a lot of Confederates are moving towards the river, but we're not really sure what their plan is. It sure seems like their whole plan is to use their numbers to push across those bridges, but when they get stiffer resistance than they thought they would, that's when things kind of slowed to a crawl. They expected those 100-day militia units, and then they start to see the blue cross that is the emblem of the 3rd Division 6th Corps. And so when, that was, when they start to see those corps insignia, they realize this is not just 100-day militia units. We are dealing with at least some of the Army of the Potomac, and that's going to slow their advance down as Ramser and Rhodes try to figure out what's to their front. And so the hours will go by with basically a lot of skirmishing. And then John B. Gordon's division comes up later in the afternoon, and Gordon's division will do a significant amount of the fighting as he finds one of those fords, pushes across it in the wake of a cavalry brigade, and really kind of brings the climactic fighting. But the story of the Battle of Monocacy is... Confederate leadership is lacking that day, for sure. There's really nobody in the front calling the shots. So you have a lot of Confederate forces, and those, those higher numbers you mentioned, a lot of those numbers are mitigated by the fact that you have no command and control at the front. Fighting was how intense it was. You, you quote a number of soldiers uh, saying that this was the hottest uh, exchange of fire they, they participated in in the entire war. Why, why was it so so vicious? Yeah, so the, the fighting is especially climactic and vicious of what's called the Thomas Farm, uh, a, a place known as Araby. And the fighting there is especially vicious, I think, because by 1864, the armies had come to expect to have the opportunity to stop 
dig trenches, dig rifle pits, and slow down. Uh, but the fighting that takes place around the Thomas Farm in the afternoon of July 9th is more akin to the stand-up, knock-down brawls that you had in 1862 and 1863. We're talking lines of battle exchanging volleys at relatively close ranges, and Gordon's three brigades of infantry essentially have a straight-on attack, and Gordon's men climb up a small hill and then attack downhill. So the Union soldiers are firing uphill at these oncoming waves of Confederate soldiers. Gordon's division suffers the highest number of losses on the, of the Confederates on the field. Gordon will write a letter to his wife the day after the battle, basically bemoaning the fact that he's lost all of these men. And he, he says he cannot repay the Lord's kindness for saving him and not his men, who suffer catastrophic damages. And I think it is so vicious because the Union Army knows their back is to the wall. They're fighting for every inch. And they, this, this again, stand-up, knock-down brawl is leading to some pretty significant casualties. One of Gordon's brigade, brigade commanders is shot in the chest and knocked out of action. You have a number of regimental commanders who, in Gordon's division who are killed or wounded. And so you don't only have soldiers who are being killed or wounded, but there's also high loss of officers as well going down in the fields around Araby, the, the home of Christian Kiefer Thomas. So it, it really is, as you say, a throwback to the, the open field stand-up fighting of Antietam, uh, the first day at Gettysburg, second day, uh, and and the the soldiers, you know, it, it sticks in their minds, they remember it, they write about it. Uh, the, the numbers eventually tell, the Union eventually will pull away from the battlefield. We'll come back and talk uh, more about the aftermath of the battle and about what's there today when we return to talk with our guest, Ryan Quint, author of Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. 
We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ryan T. Quint, author of Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864. It was a critical battle in that summer when... Confederate forces under Jubal Early were advancing towards Washington, D.C., and had they not been delayed and uh, uh, suffered large casualties at this battle, they might well have continued on and threatened the city more severely than they actually did. Uh, the In the aftermath, uh, Early does actually advance to the outskirts of the city, does he not? He does. Um, the fighting will take... All of July 9th, uh, at least all usable hours of July 9th, he polices the battlefield in early July 10th and then marches to Washington, um, arriving outside of the gates of, of the Capitol on July 11th. Uh, so he does get to the outskirts of Washington, yes. But the, uh, the his army is not what it was. Uh, I mean, he, he suffered losses. Uh, it, it's a hot summer. That, that They don't simply walk into D.C. Have large reinforcements arrived by the time he gets there? Yes. So early, you raise a good point, early loses around 900 men at Monocacy, um, around 700 of them in Gordon's division alone. So you have an entire division of infantry that suffers catastrophic damages. But the other problem that Early faces is the temperature. Uh, heat index is off the charts as he marches towards Washington. The roads are turned to dust. And Jedediah Hotchkiss, uh, the famous cartographer, mentions in his diary, soldiers are falling out by the dozens, unable to keep up with that temperature and the dust and things like that. So by the time Early closes up into Washington, his army is strung out. They're exhausted. They're tired. Um, and that delay, that two-day delay allowed elements of the 19th and 6th Army Corps to arrive in Washington. So those federal reinforcements undock, they get off steamers, and then they are hustled through the city streets to take up positions in those forts outlying the area, most famously Fort Stevens. So they take up position in these forts, and then their battle flags are resting above the, the ramparts. And so onlookers, Confederate onlookers, realize that their moment has gone, right? Because once they see those battle flags, they realize that more elements of more experienced soldiers have arrived on the field and into those forts. When you mentioned Fort Stevens, uh, listeners are thinking, I've heard that name, what happened there? That's where Lincoln watched the fighting, isn't it? Uh, Many of us have heard the story that uh, Lincoln was being, uh, you know, was being shot at, that a, a 
Union officer was shot right by his side. How true is that? How real was the danger Lincoln was in? Yeah, so very, very real. Uh, Lincoln is at Fort Stevens. He is watching the fighting. And today, if you go to Fort Stevens, there's not a whole lot left. There's a a portion of Mm -hmm. it rebuilt by the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Great Depression. But what there's also in the area is the Walter Reed Medical Complex. And it was from that complex that Confederate sharpshooters were taking pot shots at Fort Stevens. And there is a surgeon standing next to Lincoln who is hit by one of those sharpshooters. He's wounded and he falls off the ramparts. And as part of that story, there is the telling, probably not true, but it makes for a good story at least, mm-hmm. of, the, of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was serving as a Sixth Corps staff officer, who supposedly shouted out to Lincoln, get off there, you damn old fool. That part of the story, probably not true. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes though he was at Fort Stevens, probably never yelled at Lincoln. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, it is a very true story. You did have a man, an officer, standing next to Lincoln who was shot by one of those sharpshooters. Uh, so Lincoln was there. He is one of two presidents who, who ever come under fire while in office. You'll see a lot of historians say the only president, uh, but they are forgetting James Madison at the Battle of Bladensburg, who has to dance out of the way of some British rockets in 1814. So Madison and Lincoln, the only two presidents in office who are shot at. Uh, so Lincoln comes extremely close to being picked off by one of those those sharpshooters. Uh, it, it really a remarkable thing to do. The, uh, the, the Oliver Wendell Holmes story, as you, you point out, is widely quoted, often with the disclaimer, it's probably not true, but as you say, too good not to tell. Matt Pinsker's book on uh, the the soldiers' home, the Lincoln Summer Cottage, is, is certainly uh, probably has a definitive debunking of that story. But uh, but I know Matt likes the story too. The uh, so let's go back to the battlefield for a moment. I, I said up in the introduction that I myself had a chance to visit it last year, and I was really taken by it as a survival in an urban environment. There's a there's an interstate highway that runs right through the middle of it. And it, it's not like Gettysburg. And it's certainly not like Antietam. You can't squint your eyes and look around and imagine it's 1864. Uh, as far as you see, nothing but historic uh, landscape and buildings. That's not the case for most of the area. But... Uh, the, the Clifton House, uh, the house on the hill overlooking the river where the Confederates crossed, is is pretty much, uh, it's at the end of a very long, uh, so long that you think you've gone the wrong way, unpaved road, and then you get to this antebellum home and a cannon and a view. Uh, what's your experience there? Yeah, so the entire entire battlefield is a remarkable story as, as part of its preservation. Um, the battlefield today is around 1,500 acres of, of preserved land, mm-hmm. almost entirely on the southern edge, the, the, the Worthington Farm, the Thomas Farm. So those portions are remarkably well preserved, with the exception of, of 270, as you mentioned, that runs right through it. Um, but the Worthington House is, is famous for where a very young boy, Glenn Worthington, watched the battle from. Uh, mm-hmm. he'll, become, he'll go on to become one of the battle's first historians. So, and, and the really neat thing is the, the National Park Service 
who owns Clifton, the Worthington House, and who owns Araby, the Thomas House, as well as a couple of others, will periodically open those houses to visitors. They're not usually mm-hmm. open to the public, but a couple mm-hmm. times over the course of the year, they'll open them. And so if you're in the area and you see that the park has, a, has an, opening, uh, an opening house, check them out. It's really cool. You'll see battle damage in some of the houses. You'll see graffiti in some of the houses. Uh, and so the National Park Service there is doing a remarkable job trying to preserve what they can of this battlefield. Uh, just a couple of days ago, they had one of their, per- their first prescribed burns trying oh. to burn down the landscape. So the, the, the park staff there is to, are to be extremely commended for what they are, are doing, even though, again, they have around 1,500 acres, which compare that to Gettysburg's almost 7,000, Fredericksburg's almost 7,500. Uh, so they're, they're doing an absolutely remarkable job with what they have. Uh, and their story they tell is remarkable as well. Their visitor center is about 10 years old. So mm-hmm. you're talking about a staff that is doing an outstanding job in telling this very pivotal story. It, it, I join you in, in recommending to anyone. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's not off the beaten track. You say interstate runs through it, but if you don't make a point, uh, there's so many other things that overshadow. You know, Antietam, one side, Washington, uh, Gettysburg to the north, and so on. That, that it's easy to forget that it's there, and to just say, oh, I'll, I'll I'll go there next time. And I, I did that a number of times. I drove through Maryland each time saying, I'll go there next time, and I'm really glad I did uh, last year take the time to stop and see it and, and look forward to seeing it again. The uh, There are some other details uh, that you talk about in the book, and we don't unfortunately have time to go, go into them uh, all, but it's a good reason for people to get a copy of this book from Silas Beatty's Emerging Civil War series. Uh, but you talk about, for example, Wallace... Uh, Nothing, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, Wallace wins the battle, so surely his superiors uh, heap him with praise afterwards. Yeah, you'd think. Uh, but I think <laughs> the rub comes in the fact that he loses the battle. Uh, since he loses, sorry, loses the battle, the battle Monocacy is, is pushed off the battlefield. Henry Halleck, who again is chief of staff of the United States Army, hates Lew Wallace and hates him for a number of reasons. Um, Mainly, Wallace is not a West Pointer, and and Halleck doesn't trust political generals as far as you can throw them. So Halleck, who has always hated Lew Wallace, sees this as an opportunity to get rid of him. Uh, And he does. He fires Lew Wallace from his command of the middle department. And Wallace will be basically jobless for a little bit under a month before it becomes apparent what he had done, and Grant will step in and say, okay, uh, and, and reinstate him to that middle department command, uh, there are a number of people who, who look down on Henry Halleck. There's a Washington socialite who writes in his own diary that Halleck is not fit to command a latrine duty. So <laughs> you have kind of the, the, the dog, the kicks dog becomes the, the heralded dog and, and things like that. So Wallace's stand at Monocacy, though a defeat, fires him for a little while, and then he comes back. And he'll go on to do extremely, um, extremely things. Uh, he is on the committee that tries the Lincoln assassinator, Lincoln conspirators. He heads up the trial that uh, condemns Henry Verts, the commandant of Andersonville. He goes on to become the territorial governor of New Mexico. He does all sorts of things. Uh, makes my resume look pretty pivotal, uh, pretty, pretty uh, 
pitiful in comparison. It, 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 <laughs> so, no, tough to compete with, definitely. Um, so, so that does not. Uh, so, so he, I, I misspoke when I said he won, but of course he he, he saves Washington. Uh, uh, certainly, one can make a cogent argument that he did, even though he loses the actual battlefield encounter. There are other things, uh, you know, in in connection with this story. Uh, you write about the, the town of Frederick itself, which houses the the wonderful Civil War uh, medical museum. The ransom of Frederick leads to uh, the ransom and burning of Chambersburg uh, later in the campaign. There are a lot of other things that happen that, that are worth noting. But while I have you, let me ask uh, the, the Civil War talk radio time machine question. If you could go back to the Civil War era for 30 minutes in complete safety and, and then return while you're there, who would you want to meet? Who would you want to talk to? Uh, who would be the one person if you could only meet with one person? Oh man, that's a that's a million dollar question right there. Um, <laughs> I, I I probably would be Lou Wallace. This book came out of a, an undergraduate thesis I wrote while at the University of Mary Washington. So I've I've spent a few years with Wallace and his writings and his career. Uh, and there are a lot of questions I want to ask him uh, because his massive autobiography, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, were unfinished when he died. He hadn't finished his autobiography when he died. Um, his wife posthumously published it for him. So there are so many questions he never got around to talking about. Um, he went on to become the, the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so some pretty significant things that he never had a chance to write about uh, and to get really his unfiltered opinion of Henry Halleck, because I mentioned Halleck hated <laughs> Wallace. Well, the, the, the relationship was returned. Wallace hated Halleck and, and just as equally. So it would have to be Lou Wallace, right? Again, having spent a few years with his writings and his career, I'd love to sit down and, and buy him a drink and see what he has to say. Um, in terms of his post-war writing, you, you mentioned early on Ben-Hur, of course, is the, the novel that made his literary uh, fame and fortune. Uh, was that influenced by his Civil War experience? You know, that's a, that's a question that gets debated back and forth. Uh, I've seen some historians say, you know, not really. I've seen other historians who say, you know, it had to be. And I'm going to play both sides, and I'm going to say, you know, probably. I, I think all writers draw an inspiration from portions of their lives. And so I'm not about to say that the antagonist of Ben-Hur is Henry Halleck, like some people do. Uh, but I certainly think there are times in Ben-Hur where it reflects Wallace's life. And I know that sounds like a really wishy-washy answer, but I'm going to stick with it. Um, because well, it's think, just... Go ahead. No, I, I, it's a reasonable answer, and often uh, you know, there are no, no black and white answers to the best questions in history. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, and, and listeners, we'll leave you to take a look at this book, Determined to Stand and Fight, The Battle of Monocacy, July 9, 1864, by Ryan T. Quint, who is our guest tonight. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on Civil thank War you. Talk Radio. All right. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.